This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Hello, I'm Dr. Nancy Lotridge Anderson, president of New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advising firm and co-host of Money Talks. For over 10 years, Money Talks has been answering your personal financial questions and sharing knowledge about money management. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. From MPB Think Radio, you're listening to Creature Comforts. It's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, the retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. On today's show, we welcome Michael Patton, an avian biologist with the Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources, to help us explore the world of eastern bluebirds. He's been monitoring, researching, and implementing management strategies to conserve landbird species, including the eastern bluebird. So today we'll talk about the eastern bluebirds and other bird species found around the south. As always, Dr. Major is here ready to answer pet questions. Libby likes to hear about your recent encounters with nature. Email animals at mpbonline.org. If you miss Creature Comforts on Thursday, it repeats every Saturday morning at 6. So good morning, Libby. Let's uh, start with you. And uh, we were discussing before you came on, uh, we came on the air, you had quite uh, an elaborate show at one of your windows here recently. Yes. You know, we've talked so much about the um, bird attacks on windows and if they're seeing their reflection that they're going to think that's an intruder and all that. I uh, sat down at my desk working on the laptop yesterday and immediately a summer tanager, a male summer tanager, you know, beautiful, bright uh, red and I um, like to sneak looks at them in the yard and I hear them pretty often. I have been lately, you know, since they just kind of came for spring so they've been down south and uh it started attacking the window and so i got up close enough to the window that he could see me and he pulled back and just as he did a pair of uh, prothonotary warblers you know that i call the golden swamp warblers uh they both appeared and like taking turns attacking the window so obviously they were defending their territory (laughs) and even when I got right up at the window, they didn't back off. Evidently, they saw me, but they could see the other birds, too. So I uh, started playing with stuff. You know, I put a map in the window, and uh, but then I wanted to see them. I mean, you know how that goes. So I thought, okay, I might as well get a little video. And it seemed like they were not crashing into the window as much as long as I was there and had all my stuff going. It was confusing them a little bit. And so... Paul, that was the one window that Paul's not made a screen for because this has, you know, been an issue for the last couple of years at least. And uh, so he took a window screen pretty quick off another window that didn't have the reflection problem and put it on this window and, you know, stopped all the fun. But until then, I had a lot going on and um, really close looks at my birds. So I, I did take advantage and get a few pictures on my phone camera. Um, and as always, I think you've got some uh, events that you want to tell us about. Yeah. I uh, wanted to mention the matri- Master Naturalist workshops again. Uh, Adam Ronke with the Extension Service is in charge of Mississippi's Master Naturalist program. And you can Google Mississippi Master Naturalist and find out all about it. But uh, starting May the 16th, 
for eight weeks on Tuesdays, they're going to have classes. They'll be in the Museum of Natural Science when they're in a classroom. And they do a lot of the um, a lot of the Tuesday work will be done out in the field and always pretty places. So it's a it's a lot of fun. And if you've got the time on Tuesdays, this one's all going to be on Tuesdays. Every now and then, he'll do a class at night. But he usually only does, I think, one class in the Missis- in the Jackson area per year. So if you know if you can possibly do this Tuesday classes, it would be great to do. And he's got a few spots left open, so check that out and see if you want to do that. And then I've got just uh, kind of a shout out for May the nineteenth. Uh, the Natural Science Museum had had moonlight music and meteors which is a great collaboration with the LaFleur's Bluff Park and the Natural Science Museum, the uh, Mississippi Symphony Orchestra, mm-hmm. and the Astronomers Club. So they all get together and have a, a, a taste of their stuff. So there will be uh, symphony music and museum stuff, I think maybe some live um, birds, different kinds of animals, and there'll be telescopes to use. So they that was moved from last week to May the 19th. So that's a great event. But if you're in the Grenada area, during the day on the 19th, they're um, having an event there at Chakchuma, a uh, natural area that uh, our good friend Robin Whitfield mm-hmm. is in charge of that. And that looks like a fantastic event. So I'm already thinking about how can I do both. So we've got that going. And I just got a text from Paul saying that as soon as I drove out of the parking lot, he's got three Baltimore Orioles <laughs> in the tulip poplar tree. So um, I don't want to leave you guys too early, but I'm ready to go home now and see my Baltimore Orioles, too. And uh, excited to hear what Michael has to say about bluebirds. I do have one nesting pair of bluebirds that I'm watching uh, I can see it from my sewing room window, so that's been fun. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We've got a caller on the line, but I'm going to hold off to that for just a minute and bring Dr. Troy Major into our conversation. Uh, good morning, Dr. Major. In the news, for the first time in 31 years, the Labrador Retriever has been unseated as the most popular dog breed in the U.S. This according to the American Kennel Club's 2022 registration statistics. In its place sits the cute and compact French bulldog. Dr. Major, any kind of reaction to the this shocking, to me, I think, uh, news from the dog world? Well, in a way, yes, but uh, it is a trendy, uh, trendy breed, and things come and go. Uh, I can't compare it to cars, but there's one of the pickups, of course, that's been, you know, hit about everybody for the last 30 or 40 years. But the idea is this. Uh, it is a trendy. Uh, they are good companions. They have some special problems of their own, just like all other breeds. But uh, they're delightful, uh, delightful pet, and they're quite popular in this area. Uh, I'm not sure exactly. I suspect that the Labrador Retriever will remain in close competition mm-hmm. or uh, pretty, pretty high up on the list, so don't, don't count the labs out. So the, but, I'm sorry. Go ahead. You know, I think I think it is, and having been in practice quite a while, I've seen a lot of breeds' uh, popularity come and go. For example, Rottweiler, Doberman, 
Sharpays were very popular for a while. Um, so, you know, they, they, when I say come and go, the breeds are still there, but the popularity uh, ebbs and flows, I guess, best way to put it. And 31 years is a long run for the, the lab. So that's, uh, and as you mentioned, I think that they're still popular. And who knows, maybe next year they might vault back into the top spot. Uh, tell us. And, a- and you know, that, and you know this, this also is only an indication of registration mm-hmm. through the AKC. It really does not take into consideration uh, dogs that are not registered, uh, which may be uh, labs, French uh, bulldogs, uh, pit bulls, uh, for example. They aren't uh, in the AKC registration as such. So there's a lot of dogs that are fairly popular that may not be in competition with those that are registered in AKC. So um, a French bulldog, I, I guess it's a small dog, and it has the little the little pushed in nose. I guess that we associate with bulldogs. That's correct, and they have their average probably uh, somewhere, uh, probably a maximum of thirty unless they're overweight uh, in the twenty to twenty five pound range. Usually for adults, uh, they're they're what you would say adorable. I guess I don't use that word very often, <laughs> but uh, that they're 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 quite cute. Dr. Major, this is Java here in the booth. I I thought it was maybe an indication of uh, times. I don't know, maybe just a different trend or times are changing because how do you go from the Labrador Retriever, you know, a nice, big, healthy, <laughs> uh, fam, kind of a family-style dog to a smaller, you know, kind of pudgy-style uh, <laughs> French French Bulldog? That was kind of, it was kind of interesting well, they, to me. They've been been becoming quite popular for quite a few years now, and uh, I would say that uh, they will continue to be popular. They're excellent for maybe an apartment or a small area. Uh, they uh, usually attract a lot of attention if you're out walking with them, whereas the lab is can, may be considered to be commonplace. So I would say that, uh, again, it's a trend, mm-hmm. and we'll see how long it lasts. This is Creature Comforts. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. If you want to join our conversation with a question or comment this morning, you can email animals at mpbonline.org. Throughout this hour, we'll be visiting with Michael Patton, avian biologist with the Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources, talking today about eastern bluebirds. But we've got a couple of bird-related callers on the line. Uh, And so let's start on the phones. Off to Carroll County we go. Walker has called in today. Good morning, Walker. You're on the air. So go ahead, please. Good morning. Thank you. Uh, I made an impulse buy the other day of what's called a solar-powered hummingbird feeder, which I'm quite sure will feed hummingbirds, but the solar power aspect of it may just be uh, a nice uh, aesthetic nighttime light. Uh, It depends, I guess, on whether hummingbirds feed at night or not. Hmm. I have never watched my hummingbirds feed at night, but um, I guess anybody that buys that hummingbird feeder is going to find out if theirs do. I was thinking that that might just um, attract your flying squirrels to your hummingbird feeder, but I don't know. Uh, Anybody that's got one, give us a call, and we'd like to hear about it. But um, I know that uh, some people complain that uh, flying squirrels drain the hummingbird feeders at night so this, I don't know if this would promote that or not. Maybe it would keep them away because they do like the dark. 
They don't need that light to get to the hummingbird feeder. Did you buy one? Uh, he, he dropped off. <laughs> oh, did he drop off? Uh, and I think, he's, he, I think he did say he bought one. Our guest is Michael Patton. Michael, any thoughts on uh, hummingbirds feeding at night? You know, Kevin, I, uh, I don't actually know. That's a great question. My understanding is, is that they don't, um, that they usually will go find a perch somewhere and roost for the evening. Um, but I, I haven't heard of them doing that. But, you know, nature's wild and anything can happen, right? <laughs> uh, a quick Google search um, says that uh, hummingbirds do not tend to drink the nectar at night. But if you see that it is draining over the night, it's probably bats, squirrels, raccoons, possums, bears, insects, or Orioles. <laughs> <laughs> so just about everybody else wants yeah, that. So you might, you might get a lot of entertainment at that solar feeder. Yeah. Uh, we've got another caller on the line. Looks like a bird-related question coming from our friend Mike in Hernando. Mike, you're on the air with us. Go ahead. Uh, question, please. Uh, one of the birds that I enjoy watching, I've had one show up in my yard periodically, is the red cardinal. Uh, they certainly stand out as tiny as they are. Of course, the red color against all the green. But I'm trying to figure out how to attract him to come more often, and I don't know what to put out for feed because they got obviously a lot of sparrows. But all of a sudden, yesterday morning, there was this cardinal out amongst them, and I'd like to get him to come back. I, do, I don't see him very often, but I want to attract him to my yard. Have you guys got some ideas? Black oil sunflower seeds is what I use, and I do have a lot of cardinals. And uh, once you get them accustomed to your yard, they're a year-round resident here in Mississippi, so uh, you can enjoy them year-round. Oh, great. Okay, I'll try. Uh, did you say sunflower seeds? Yeah, black, black oil black sunflower yep. seeds particularly. Okay, all right. Well, I'll put those out in my feeder and see what happens. Okay. All right, Micah, let us know. Thanks for calling in. Always good to hear from you in Hernando. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We're going to be visiting throughout the hour with Michael Patton, avian biologist with the Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources. So, Michael, if you would, tell us a little bit about the, the work that you do and, and how you got interested in, in biology. Yeah, so um, like you said, I'm an avian biologist with Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources. Um, my main... Uh, job here is to essentially just do research and uh, work on conservation for Kentucky species of greatest conservation need. So it's going to be things like uh, species like peregrine falcons, bald eagles, gold-winged warblers. Um, and we're just trying to, you know, monitor populations, see what we can do to improve habitat, and just to keep these species around and keep, you know, even birds that are you know, common right now, keep them common. Um, I, I got interested in birds when I was in my uh, undergrad in college. Um, you know, I took an ornithology class and just fell in love um, and then, you know, did some work outside of uh, school and then went to grad school for birds and uh, just checked around a little bit and then got a job here with the department. So we are going to be talking about uh, eastern bluebirds today. Um, tell us a little bit about the bird and, and where they're found. Yeah, so eastern bluebirds, they're a, a semi-common bird uh, throughout the eastern United States. They're found all the way up to uh, in Canada and they're found all the way down to Mexico. Um they're uh, kind of a bird of they used to be historically be found on like savannas, so like intermittent trees, short grasses, and uh, you know nowadays we typically find them in pastures, golf courses, cemeteries, roadsides, people's yards, you know parks. Um, they're a striking bird, you know that really deep, vivid blue um, in the males up on the head, the wings, and back, and that kind of rusty red on the throat and breast. Uh, females a little bit more drab, a little more gray, but they're still just very striking. People just love them. 
Yeah, I did a quick uh, image search before we came on the air, and you're right, the, the, the blue with the red on the throat there really is quite striking. But the one thing I noticed was the western bluebird that looked <laughs> very similar. So how do, how do you differentiate between birds like that that might, might look close to each other? So for uh, the western and the eastern bluebird, it's really just a where where are you in the United States okay. or you know Canada or Mexico? Um, they typically are found west of the Rocky Mountains. Um, so you know if you you're unlikely to find one you know in Mississippi or you know in my case Kentucky. Um, but you know like I said really really um, similar. Uh, the western bluebird can have a little bit more orange like on the back, um, whereas the eastern bluebird typically has that you know pretty pretty pure blue back. And so if someone's out and about and sees a bird that they're not familiar with, do you think maybe trying to remember colors and that sort of thing is the best way to later maybe go online to try to identify what bird they saw? Yeah, there's like tons of different techniques of identifying birds that you're not familiar with. Um, generally, what you're looking for is colors, kind of what shape is it, um, what is it doing, what kind of habitat is it found in. Uh, these are all really important kind of field marks that will help you identify, you know, what the species that is. Um, and I think, you know, if you can get a picture, that's great. Or even just kind of like a mental snapshot of like, what exactly did that look like? It's very helpful for me. And then uh, again, talking about an eastern bluebird, uh, uh, size and weight, is it a relatively small bird? Uh, they're, they're between like, what we think like a, a sparrow and a robin. Um, so kind of smallish to mid-size, if you will. Um, I don't have their exact weight memorized, but they're they're... They're pretty big, and they're, they're large bodies, if that makes sense. So for a smaller bird, they're kind of husky. Um, they kind of pop up a little bit. And um, are these uh, year-round residents of, uh, of our part of the country? Yeah, down, down your way, um, they are. Typically, um, they'll be around year-round. Um, the, up in the northern latitudes, like Canada, on the northern, northeastern United States, they'll actually migrate down our way. Um, in the wintertime, but they'll be around your yards just around. Uh, their territories get bigger in the wintertime, and they might do kind of a short-distance migration where they'll, you know, travel a few miles to, like, a habitat that's just got a little bit more wintertime food for them than their breeding grounds. Um, but in your neck of the woods, I'd expect to see them year-round, yes. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We're going to be visiting this hour with our guest, Michael Patton. He is from the Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources, an avian biologist. So we're talking about blue, uh, birds today, specifically the eastern bluebird. But if you have any kind of bird question, I think Michael might be able to give you some assistance. We do have a caller on the line, and it comes from Memphis. Thad has called into the show today. Good morning, Thad. You're on the air with us. Go ahead. Good morning. Uh, I know bats are not exactly birds, but uh, I had an encounter with a bat last weekend. I'd been out working in the yard, and it was late in the afternoon. I was sitting on my patio, and the bat just dropped onto my patio. I have a uh, an oak tree in the front yard that sort of hangs over the, the house, and I assume it dropped out of the oak tree. Um, I put it in a box, and I sort of thought it was going to die. But uh, since it was getting cool, I put I went to my workshop, which and which is you know, a brick structure, and took it in there, um, you know, with a blanket and all that kind of stuff, and left the windows open. And it, it hung out on a rafter for a long time. And I went back in later. And it actually flew out of the box, and then it hung out on a rafter. And I went back in later, and it was gone. So I, I wondered whether you thought maybe it, uh, you know, was diseased, or whether it was a, a young bat that you know, might have fallen out of a nest or something. I just don't know that much about bats. Um, 
yeah, there are, there are plenty of reasons, I guess, that a bird could, a bat could fall out of the tree like that. But um, it's, uh, you did the right thing, uh, and um, it's best not to hold them in your hands and, you know, don't get too, um, too uh, up close and natural with them. But putting it in a box in a warm place and giving it a chance was a good thing to do. But it may, it may have been sick. So, uh, you know, we always caution people if you find a bat on the ground or low down anywhere where, you know, where people could pick it up, it's best not to pick it up. Don't handle it. Michael might know more about bats. You gotta. Do you want to weigh in on that one, Michael? Bats definitely are not my expertise. <laughs> like, I, like you said, it may it may be sick. Um, they oftentimes too, if they get on the ground, they have a really tough time taking off from the ground. So even maybe just placing it high up, like you did with enough to get it to fly away. Um, but I don't have a real great answer for you, unfortunately. Uh, doc, uh, go ahead. Great. Very common. I think that was probably the underlying fear that I had. I used a rake. I had on gloves, but I still didn't pick it up. I used a rake to get it into the box, and I was real careful about putting um, a cloth over it. And I threw away the plastic box that it had been in, you know, after it flew off um, into the rafter. So I just didn't know whether, you know, this, I didn't know whether rabies was easily communicable. Like I know it's probably not airborne, but I, I was really careful with that and I didn't know whether you might have some advice about how common it was. Yeah, he would um, it, you know, it's not common but it's such an awful thing to get that you don't want to take any chances at all. Uh, they do have to either, you know, it's from their saliva so they would either have to bite you or you would have to get that saliva in a cut on you or something. So you know, you did the right thing though not to take any chances with your with your skin you don't need to pick him up skin to skin uh dr major any thoughts on on the bat issue that's a great question who knows what was going on with that bat it may have been a young one as as she indicated i would say that uh always be careful either wear gloves or use a towel if you're going to pick it up and put it in a box but one of the problems that uh certainly uh bats can carry rabies uh, there was a case, I think, in Columbus several years ago of a cat that actually was bitten by a bat, and cats and curiosity killed the cat thing. And if the bat is fluttering on the ground, a cat's probably going to play with it or try to kill it. So that was diagnosed, and it was uh, DNA uh, showed that it was bat rabies. So be careful. I mean, rabies, is, as, as Libby said, is a very dangerous disease, uh, and uh, I would be very careful. Uh, if you handle a bat. All right, uh, Thad, thanks for your call. Sounds like the, you did uh, the, the right thing to do, and it's good that the, the bat uh, survived. So thank you for your call. Kevin Farrell here on MPB Think Radio with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. This is Creature Comforts. Our guest for this hour is Michael Patton from the Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife Services. If you missed any of today's show, you can always subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcasting app or download the MPB Public Media app. That way you get to listen to all the local MPB Think Radio programs on your schedule. You can email animals at mpbonline.org. Got a caller on the line and more with uh, our guest, but uh, Java, our producer, has an interesting bird story to share. Uh, yes, just the other day I was um, outside of the house and I saw what I now know 
was a blue jay being chased by a crow. And it just was a real peculiar sight because I was like, wait, is this bird trying to eat the other bird or what are they doing? You know, I've seen, um, you know, cardinals kind of go after cardinals and things like that, similar birds. But this was a, a blue jay and a now no was a crow, a really black crow. And it was just chasing this. It was the crow was chasing the blue jay around the tree. And um, we we're getting ready to leave, so that's how we were outside, and I saw this uh, phenomenon. Then we drove to another part of the city, and I saw the exact same thing. I said, how are these birds following us? <laughs> and because this same blue jay is being chased by this same crow. But a little Google search showed that um, blue jays are really aggressive and kind of bully of the bird world, but they will be bullied by crows. And that was just kind of uh, interesting to me, and I wanted to share. And it leads to a question, too, with the um, with the eastern bluebirds. Are they social birds like, uh, you know, the blue jays? Will they interact with um, with others, other birds, uh, Michael? Uh, they're not social in the way that we would think of, like, um like titmice and chickadees that kind of have those mixed flocks in the wintertime. Um, they'll hang around other birds that are tolerant of other species, um, especially if you have, like, nesting bluebirds in your yard. You might have tree swallows that are nesting nearby, and they tolerate each other, but I wouldn't say they're, you know, overly friendly. They, they will defend their nest boxes if, you know, another species gets too close or, you know, like you said, like if a blue jay were to come up and, you know, start antagonizing them, they're going to drive that off. They can be aggressive in that manner. And now when you see a group of bluebirds together, like particularly in the winter, I'll notice it seems mm-hmm. like, you know, almost like a little mini flock. And I've wondered if those have a famil- have a family connection. Are they genetically related or do they just kind of seek each other out? You know, it's definitely possible that they're related. I'm not aware of any studies that have looked at those flocks in the wintertime and, you know, looked at the genetics and see if they are. I wouldn't be surprised if they are. They typically will kind of hang around those same territories. They don't disperse super far when they fledge. Um, you know, and as you say, it's interesting in the wintertime, especially when it's really cold, you often can find, you know, several adult bluebirds in those boxes that'll uh, be kind of, you know, essentially cuddling together for warmth. Yes, um, yes, so that, I've seen that. that. They are very social, yeah. Uh, so, Michael, what is the the health of the eastern bluebird population? Uh, right now, it's it's doing. There are uh, species that's doing very well. Um, you know, during like the 1940s, the 1970s, there was a you know even earlier, there was a significant decline in the species, um, especially with the introduction of you know European starling and the house sparrow. Um, they were competing for cavities, and you know those invasive species are a little bit more aggressive than our native bluebirds, so they were excluding the bluebirds, and it just caused this huge decline. Um, and then, you know, essentially in the you know 1940s and on, they started putting out bluebird boxes. Bluebird trails became a very popular thing, um, and then they started also making the entrances to those boxes, you know, about an inch and a half in diameter. And that was you know small enough to exclude the starlings, so that they couldn't get in there, um, and then. You know, just really looking after the species has led to a you know major decline. I think they've you know increased by like seventy percent in the past like fifty years. So everything's looking really really great for them. So uh, we've gotten several emails this morning saying, you know, where are my bluebirds? Which leads to kind of a two part question. And so the first part is, if someone wants more bluebirds, and again, there's such striking 
visually striking birds. I don't if you're a bird lover, I don't know why you wouldn't. But uh, <laughs> what are some ways that people could attract eastern bluebirds to their backyard? Yeah. So uh, the, the first thing is habitat. You know, you have to have the right space for them. Um, you need to have kind of shorter, shorter grass. You know, they don't like anything super tall. Um, but it's important to kind of have, you know, perches nearby so that they can, you know, perch up in them and look for food and hunt from them. Um, it, it's important to have uh, native, you know, plants as well um, that have fruit uh, for the wintertime and then actually encourage insects um, that they'll be you know, looking for. Uh, the second thing is going to have some type of cavity, whether that's a naturally occurring cavity, you know, like from like a woodpecker hole, or if it's going to be putting up nest boxes, you know, maybe a place to nest. And the second part would be, why aren't they in my yard? And that's not maybe necessarily that something someone is doing wrong. It's just maybe the birds have found a different area that might have more what they're looking for. Yeah, yeah it can take years to attract bluebirds. You know, you got to think they got to find a place, right? They're not going to just, you know, hone in on that nest box from 30 miles away and say, that's the place I want to be. So uh, putting that nest box up and then just waiting, and if, you know, you see a bluebird around and they don't actually nest in there, maybe move it a little bit, try to find a better spot. You know, they don't like, you know, any, like, trees or brush immediately near that nest box. They kind of like it to be open, but stuff nearby. So just play around with it year after year. Um, you can also put out, you know, food for them. They won't eat seeds from your bird feeder, um, but, you know, eat mealworms. You put out a nice uh, tray of those for them. They like having water sources nearby. They do regular baths and they drink from them. Um, so there's a lot you can do to uh, really encourage them to show up. And you know, when you do these things, you're also going to be attracting other species of birds that are, you know, benefit uh, from all of these habitat changes you'll be making to your place. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Our guest for this hour is Michael Patton from the Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife Services. We've been talking about the eastern bluebird, but we'll expand our conversation here in just a bit to include some other birds as well. If you have a bird question or a pet question for Dr. Major, or if you want to share a recent encounter with nature, you can email the show by sending it to animals at mpbonline.org. So I think you mentioned earlier in the show, Michael, that the, some of the other uh, uh, conservation efforts that you've been working on when it comes to birds. Um, and on my list here is um, the loggerhead shrike. Am I saying that right? I've never heard of that bird. Tell us yeah. a little bit about that. Yeah, so loggerhead shrike, they're uh, like the bluebird. They're kind of more of an open land bird. Um, they're, they're becoming increasingly rare um, throughout most of the United States. Um, they're, a, they're also kind of known colloquially as a butcher bird. Butcher bird, excuse me. Um, where they'll actually, you know, take, they mostly eat arthropods, so things like grasshoppers, and they'll take them and they'll impale them on, like, um, thorns and, like, locust trees or on barbed wire fences, and they create these larders um, where they'll, you know, come back and eat food later, and it also just kind of shows, you know, their mate, you know, potential mate, what good hunters they are, and, um, you know, they say, I can eat all this food, then I'll come mate with me, essentially. Yeah. Um, but they're a declining species, um, and we're just, in Kentucky, at least, and I'm sure throughout most of the range, all the biologists are working on trying to understand what's happened to this population and uh, what can we do to try to prevent, you know, it from decreasing any further. But uh, they're a very, very striking bird, um, you know, kind of white, gray, have a kind of a black mask. Um, and they're found usually, I find them in Kentucky, a lot of uh, cattle pasture, farmland areas. I always love the the things from the animal world because, I, I mean, what female shrike wouldn't be impressed by, you know, several <laughs> grasshoppers right. impaled on them? Yeah. Well, yeah. When we yeah. had beehives, we 
had loggerhead strikes. It's been years now since we did that. But they were so much fun to watch, we just decided we can give up a few bees, you know. But they would yeah. uh, grab the bees and impale them on the barbed wire fence, and sometimes <laughs> it would be like a string there, the trophies that they had um, collected. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Looks like we've got a couple of uh, Bluebird questions coming in on the line. So let's begin again on the phone lines. Arthur has called in today from Jackson. Arthur, you're on the air with us. Go ahead. Yes, I had a question about putting up houses, what type of poles to put them on, whether raccoons could climb up them or not. Yeah, so uh, that's a great question. My, my favorite type of pole would be like a, uh, a thin, like a three-fourth inch like galvanized steel pole. Um, and what, what I would do is I would put some type of baffle on it, either, you know, some PVC with a lid um, or even just a simple cone of some sort or a stove pipe. Um, and, and that just prevents things from being able to climb up them, like, at all, um, especially if it's a little loose and shakes. Uh, some folks will put grease on those poles, too. Um, I, I don't advise that just because you don't want to have, you know, a raccoon getting covered in grease in your property or anything like that, or even the birds themselves. Um, like a tea post, they'd probably be able to climb that, wouldn't they? Yeah, yeah, unless you're putting some type of baffle on, they'd probably be able to get up that pretty easily. And, you know, snakes are a big concern for those nesting birds. And um, and you, you need something that prevents, just essentially obstructs them from being able to get further up that pole. Okay. So and there's, there's lots of plans online if you're looking to make your own. Um, but I, I think just that PVC, I think like a four inch or six inch PVC tube that you secure around that and has a lid, either if it's just like hardware cloth or even just PVC lid itself will keep them from able to get you know around that and keep going up the pole. Okay. All right. Well thank you so much. How, how tall should you put yeah, it up? Michael, I, I'm sorry. How tall should it be? Uh I, I like to put them uh, like a so the actual like hole of the uh the nest box is about six feet, well, slightly under six feet, um, but it can be anywhere from, I think, three to eight feet that they'll use for the that people have found. Um, but that, that six foot, just in my experience, has been that sweet spot. It's high enough off the ground where it, you know, it sways things from jumping up at the nest box, um, and that way you can still access it if you want to clean it out later this, you know, after the chick's sledge. All right, Arthur, thanks for calling us this morning. Let's uh, stay on the phone lines. Another Bluebird question, this time coming from Drew, who calls us from Brandon. Go ahead, Drew. You're on the air with us. Yes, sir. Um, I'm, my question was about when to clean out a Bluebird box and any other maintenance that needs to be done for it. Yeah, so uh, typically I advise folks to clean out the boxes once the chicks fledge. Um, so keep an eye on them. Uh, you'll see that you'll find you know small, immature birds flying around the property usually. Um, that's a good time. You can go in there and clean up the nest. Um, and oftentimes the bluebirds will have more than one brood in a season. So that way, you know, you can figure out when they're going to start nesting again. Um, and that just keeps, you know, instead of like ectoparasite, like feather mites out of the nest box, blowfly larvae, uh, just, and it helps increase the health of your bird, your birds. Okay. All right, uh, Drew, thanks for your call. Let's uh, stay on the phone lines a bit, uh, diverging a little bit off the topic, but uh, still on topic because it's a pet question or a pet comment, I think, coming from Don and Hernando. Don, you're on the air with us. Go ahead. Good morning. Uh, enjoy your show so much. Uh, recent, my, my wife and I dog sit my son's golden doodle during the day, and the dog loves the family members but has a hard time with strangers. Well, my sister was visiting us. And she came in, and he immediately started uh, barking at her. And I gave her some treats to give them, said, here, give them some treats. She says, no, I don't want the treats. 
and she just totally ignored him and his barking. And after a few minutes, we just carried on our conversation. And after a few minutes, he quit barking at her. And then we kept on talking, and he went about his business. But then when she got up from her chair to walk across the room, he came up behind her and kind of took his nose and just kind of like, you know, butted her in, in her leg like, hey, pay attention to me. And she still <laughs> ignored him. And, and then uh, we took him home that afternoon, and she stayed overnight. And the next morning when I went to get him and bring him back into the house, he came in and went straight to her and just sat there and went like, hey, pay attention to me. And he didn't bark at her anymore. And he just, we had no problem with her and him barking. And it was just amazing to me that all she did was ignore him. And, and then he, then he immediately, you know, just fell in love with her and just followed her around from then on. So that's just a little, just a little tip, you know, for uh, golden doodles because that beat can be kind of hyper and that type of thing. And he was just great with my sister. So I'm looking forward to trying that with someone else <laughs> coming over to the house. But uh, just a little tip for people who own golden doodles. All right, uh, Don, thanks for your call. Uh, Dr. Major, any kind of thoughts on, on Don's uh, call? That's, that's interesting, and uh, I think they chose the right right way to handle that. And it depends on the dog. You know, uh, I wouldn't say necessarily that a golden doodle, all golden doodles would act the same way, but uh, that was a good method that they used. Uh, I have one question about uh, the bluebird boxes. Uh, I have a problem with squirrels. Uh, they, they will actually predate or remove eggs and or baby uh, bluebirds. And one of the things that helps with that would be a piece of metal around the hole um, to help prevent because the squirrel can actually eat into the wood and, and make a bigger hole for themselves. So I just thought I'd mention that. But we have so many squirrels that uh, certainly could be a problem. All right. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. Our guest today is Michael Patton from the Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife. I've missed the um, sorry, Fish and Wildlife Services, similar to our MDWFP, but up there in Kentucky. Uh, We do have another bluebird question on the line. So we say good morning to Evelyn, who's called in from Jackson. Go ahead, Evelyn. You're on the air with us. Hey, and of course, while I was on hold, I caught thought of two or three more questions. (laughs) (laughs) So first question, did I understand correctly when we need to clean out the nesting boxes between the broods? Uh, I would say that it's not absolutely necessary to clean them off between the broods. Um, It it can be helpful. It can cut down on those parasites. Um, there's, there's a lot of mixed information out there as far as, you know, in the wintertime, it could be nice to have some insulation material in those boxes. Cause like I said earlier in the show that those adults will use those boxes to, um, overwinter, especially when it's very cold. Um, so that can be helpful. Um, and there's some evidence that shows that, that, you know, certain species of things that will kind of winter in those boxes actually helps cut down on parasites. Um, so there's not a, a you know, this is the right thing to do, unfortunately, for us. Um, but I, if you're interested in keeping track of your broods and keeping track of your birds, I, I, I think that cleaning them out after they fledge is great. Um, if you just want to do it once a year, that works too. Um, I would make sure to clean them out, though, you know, very early February, end of January, before the new nesting season begins. Um, that way there's just, you know, make sure there's not a bunch of feathered mites in there that have overwintered, and that can potentially, you know, be detrimental to the young that are going to happen that year. Okay, so second question, um, 
how long, once they hatch, how long does it generally take them to fledge? Uh, it can take anywhere between 18 and 19 days for them to leave the nest. There's a little bit of variation there, but um, I, I found in my experience that 18 days usually is the that, that prime window for them. Okay, because my son has uh, had, his have fledged, and mine haven't yet. In fact, I was just watching the adults feed them uh, while I was waiting on the line. Uh, say, a third question, if you've got two bluebird boxes, how far apart do they need to be? So I would recommend um, have them about maybe like 100 yards from each other if they are, if you're trying to get two bluebirds. Um, if you have two boxes near each other, what can actually happen sometimes is you'll get bluebirds in one and then like tree swallows in the other. Um, and now like if you, if you, like I said earlier, if you typically um, tree swallows are kind of aggressive and they'll move in pretty quickly. Um, and if you want to have tree swallows and bluebirds, you can stick another box, you know, five, 20 feet away from um, the the tree swallow box and they'll kind of cohabitate and bluebirds will be there and tree swallows but if you want two different pairs of bluebirds i'd say about 100 yards okay because i i get uh, sometimes uh carolina chickadees in one box of bluebirds in the other um yeah. change of subject purple finches do they eat thistle i know they eat boss black old sunflower seed but do they eat thistle Oh, that's a great question. You know, I'm not entirely sure. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I don't have an answer for you, unfortunately. All right, Evelyn, thanks for your call. Let's see if we can work one final call in. It's Curtis calling in from Grenada. Good morning. You're on the air with us, Curtis, so uh, go ahead. Good morning. Yes, uh, I was listening earlier to the person call about the hummingbirds at night. Right. Yeah. Uh, look, they do feed at night. One day uh, earlier this month, I must have had 50, uh, at least 50 of them outside of my house. Well, I have humming, I've been feeding them for 20 years. And a whole bunch came out. I heard them, I heard all this noise out, and I went out, and there was a whole bunch of them out there, at least 50 of them. All right. And, well, they, and, and they were eating. Now, I did have, I do have a light out there, but they were seized. Yeah, and they may have been coming back, uh, you know, from their migration, and they just need to refuel on those things. So they'll, you know, if you have that food out in the nighttime, yeah, I could see them taking that up, advantage of that opportunity and kind of refueling. So that's great to know that they do that. Thanks for your call, Curtis. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio, wrapping things up this hour with our guest Michael Patton. So, Michael, with the the birds that we talk about, conservation efforts and that sort of thing, is there maybe one problem? A lot of times I think we talk about loss of habitat as being something that really is endangering a lot of animals. Is is that the case with some of these birds? Yeah, that's the case for most species of birds. It's it's loss of habitat and loss of food. Um, So as we see habitat decline, we see insect populations decline, and most bird species are insectivores. Um, so without those insects, they, they just can't survive. Um, so, you know, growing native plants around your house or on your property is a great way to kind of offset some of that. And that's one of the biggest things that we can do right now, um, it, you know, as private folks, is just try to increase habitat for a variety of different species. Yeah, and I would say um, limit the amount of insecticide you use. Mm-hmm. Think about do you really need to be killing those insects because there's always something there that wants to eat them. Um, So, Michael, any thoughts on maybe an online resource, not necessarily just for eastern bluebirds, but if someone is interested in birds and wants to learn more about maybe what they're seeing around where they live? 
Yeah, definitely. Uh, there's three really good ones. Um, for Bluebird specifically, there's styles.org. That's S-I-A-L-I-S.org. Um, and that's Eastern Bluebird specific. It'll tell you everything you'd ever want to know about the species and, you know, nesting and all that kind of stuff. Um, there's All About Birds. Um, that's uh, by Cornell University. Um, and that's just a, every, you know, North American species, I believe, is on there. And just information about them, where you can find them. And then there's uh, there's nestwatch.org by Cornell again, and that's specifically kind of for, you know, uh, different types of birdhouses you can put up, what you can attract on your property. They kind of have a neat little tool that will, you can kind of plug in your habitat around uh, where you want to put your box up, and it'll tell you what kind of species that you can attract uh, potentially. So I think those are all, you know, great resources for the bird lover. All right, that's going to wrap us up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio, funded in part by generous listeners. To hear today's show or previous show, you can visit creaturecomforts.mpbonline.org. Our show is produced by Java Chapman, and we had a team approach to the call screening today, I think. So for Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest Michael Patton, I'm Kevin Farrell, inviting you to stay tuned because up next, it's autocorrect. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts, heard only on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.